0: This is the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome. We have some great guests coming up in today's show. You won't want to miss this. At 4.20, I'll speak with John Bramnick. He's the minority leader of the New Jersey State Assembly. And, and besides being one of the funniest lawyers in New Jersey, and that is an official title, uh, he's made a name for himself as a politician who preaches civility and bipartisanship. But, but that doesn't mean John Bramnick ever hesitates to throw a punch at Democrats when he needs to. So I'm looking forward to what he, he, he has to say about the upcoming election. And coming up at 4.35, I'll be joined by acting New Jersey Attorney General Andrew Bruck. He's been on the job for about five weeks. He's wasted no time in taking on dangerous gang members, making gun safety one of his signature issues. He's now New Jersey's number one law enforcement officer. So you are not going to want to miss a word of what he has to say. And, and as all of us watch what's happening in Afghanistan right now, are our thoughts and our prayers go out to our troops with our, our grateful appreciation to those who serve. And and all of us join in the, the grief of losing 13 American service members during an attack outside the airport in Kabul. My job is not to assign a blame, but but there are many people exponentially more, more expertise than I have. They'll do that, but we're dealing with some political realities that... Could trickle down to elections in New Jersey and, and New York in November. President Biden's national approval rating has dropped to the lowest point in his presidency. He's, he's at about forty-seven percent. Uh, these are these are recent polls that are averaged out, and that's down from fifty-four percent in June. When a president's poll numbers drop, it affects candidates of his own party all the way down the ticket in an upcoming election. And in New Jersey, Democrats are becoming a little bit concerned with polling that shows Biden's approval rating on the handling of COVID also dropping. Uh, For the, the first six months of his presidency, he was in the 60s. Now he's in the 50s. And for Biden's handling of the economy, these national polls have seen him drop by about four points in the last month. He was in the 50s in July. Now he's in the high 40s. And, and for those of you who listen to this show every week, and thank you for that, you know I place a tremendous amount of importance on history. And, and while it's clear that if you've seen one election, you've seen one election, I'd like to point out some of the modern historical factors that you should know about. And, and first of all, and you, you probably all heard me say this over and over uh, as heavily democratic as Jersey is the state hasn't reelected a democratic governor since 1977. And since then three Republicans have been elected and reelected. So, so why are Joe Biden's polling numbers important in New Jersey? 12 years ago, uh, barack obama's first year as president his approvals in new jersey were about 55 percent and the democratic governor john corzon still lost and if you go all the way back to 1993 that was the year bill clinton took office clinton's new jersey approvals were at 36 percent and governor jim florio a democrat lost And, and i and i know that's very much about local issues and and not national issues but it's it's impossible to deny that the national political climate doesn't affect local elections. This is David Wildstein. I'm talking about public opinion polls on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour and Talk Radio 77 WABC. A Monmouth University poll this week shows that Governor Murphy's sitting on a 54% job approval rating, and and that's important because vote by mail ballots are going out in about three weeks, and in some places less than that. More importantly for, for Murphy, uh, 61% of voters in New Jersey say he's done a good job handling the coronavirus pandemic, and just 28% says he's done a bad job. Now, these are these are the mammoth poll numbers that I found most interesting. By a margin of about 2 to 1, New Jersey voters, including those with school-aged children, are backing Murphy's school mask mandate. And 53% of New Jersey voters say they would approve of a vaccine mandate for children over age 12 to attend school. 38% say they would disapprove. And a majority of New Jerseyans, it was 62%, say they support reinstituting face mask and social distancing guidelines. And about 45% say they'd strongly support it. 17% said that they would somewhat support it. And among voters with school-aged children, that number jumps to 59 percent. And and among independents, which is which is where you often win or lose elections in New Jersey, uh, support for more masks are and and social distancing is at 59 percent. But there is an issue on which Jerseyans are sharply divided. The Monmouth poll asks whether the state should mandate COVID vaccinations for children under age 12 in order to attend school in person, 45% of the voters said yes, 44% said no. Uh, a digital ad launched by Republican gubernatorial candidate Jack Chitterelli this week has drawn a lot of attention. Uh, Democrats are telling me that they think it's a strong effective message. And the ad, and when I say digital ad, I mean it's showing up on Internet sites, not on television or radio. It focuses on the testimony of a former Murphy administration official who says she was raped while working on the governor's campaign four years ago. Uh, the, the alleged rapist, according to the woman, was a, a top campaign staffer. He's been he's been identified. Uh, he's appeared before legislative committees. And and even though the, the woman reported the assault, the the rapist was still given a job working in the administration. And that became the subject of a legislative inquiry in 2019. Now, now to be clear. The, the rapist, the alleged rapist, was never charged despite investigations by two county prosecutors. Uh, the Chitterelli campaign ad uses video of the victim's testimony in their ad and, and it's, it's powerful. Uh, but the woman, and, and she left her own job in the Murphy administration earlier this year, uh, she sharply criticized the way the Chitterelli campaign used her story and her image. Without her consent, and and I want to read to you exactly what she said. She said survivors are not your props, and we are not your political pawns. And this was in a tweet uh, that was that was aimed directly at the Chiderelli Allen campaign. And she said that her testimony in a used in a political ad. It she said it disrespected survivors and it disrespected women. And and that said, I'm waiting to see if. The Cittarelli campaign airs a version of this on, on television uh, because because this is, a, as I said earlier, a powerful issue. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on talk radio 77 WABC. Now, there is a classic story about Hudson County politics. It involves, get this, it involves a prostitute, a pimp, a Hoboken politician, and a murderer. Silvio Filo was a 62-year-old freshman assemblyman. Uh, he, was, he was an undertaker who spent 20 years running the New Jersey Funeral Directors Association. And on Thursday, September 16, 1972, Filo decided to spend the night at his summer home on the Jersey Shore. And he stopped for a drink at a place called Big Bill's Bar in Neptune. And that's where he met a 22-year-old prostitute from New York named Deborah Dell. And around 10.50 that night, an area resident heard what she believed to be firecracker noises, followed by the cries that might have been Assemblyman Phyla's last words, yelling, Help me. And Phyla was still alive when the Neptune police arrived. He'd been shot four times with a small caliber handgun. Police followed bloodstains. They found Phyla a few feet away sitting alongside a metal fence. He was conscious when they found him, but he died in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. Police identified him when they found his black Cadillac with state assembly license plates and the gold seal in the parking lot of the bar. Now, robbery was considered the motive. Fila had a reputation for carrying large amounts of cash, but but still there was a a diamond ring that he was wearing that was not taken. So police formed a task force to solve Assemblyman Fila's murder. Uh, October 11th, uh, they, they arrested the prostitute and her 26-year-old pimp. And both were sentenced to life in prison. The, the pimp was paroled in 1991. He, he became a minister. He spent 25 years helping others before he died about five years ago. Uh, the prostitute who committed the murder was paroled in 1997. And, and let me say something else about the late Assemblyman Fila. On his first day as a state legislator, Democrats had a 40-39 majority in the New Jersey State Assembly. They were supposed to elect the Democrat, Howard Woodson, is the new speaker. But a group of legislators led by David Friedland of Jersey City made a deal with Republicans that made Tom Kane the new speaker. And, and Fyla, and he, he might have had some flaws here and there. Uh, that's not completely uncommon among those who hold public office in New Jersey. But at least he was a loyal Democrat. He was one of the Hudson County Democrats who stuck with Howard Woodson. And I'm going to talk more about that, uh, about that story a little later in this show. Uh, there's a controversy right now in Atlantic County. Uh, it's not certain if they have a state senator or not. Uh, And you would think that's a basic question. Who's the state senator from Atlantic County? The problem is there's a difference of opinion right now. Nobody really knows. The Republican senator from the district, his name was Chris Brown, he resigned in July to take a job working for Governor Murphy. There was a special election on August 4th, and Vincent Palestina won the Republican primary. The, The problem is that the senators need to be sworn in at a Senate session by the Senate president. And the Senate has recessed until after the November election. So Palestina couldn't get sworn in, but he wants to be the senator. He wants to be the incumbent senator as he seeks a full term. So he had a retired judge administer the oath. And the Senate Democrats say he's not a senator. They, and so does the nonpartisan office of legislative services. They agreed, they said Palestina isn't the Senator until the Senate swears him in. So I think this is going to be a a campaign issue i I, I guess in the race where where Democrats think that they can flip a state Senate seat. Their candidate is four term assemblyman Vince Mazio and uh, and I think this controversy over whether somebody, was elected in the normal process of how you fill vacancies in the legislature and the other party refuses to swear him in. I think that's, that's going to be a, a fairly important issue, uh, going forward. Uh, at least the campaigns are going to try. I, when I say it's a, going to be an important issue, campaigns are going to try and make it an issue or not to make it an issue. And that'll be, that'll be up to the voters to see where they go on this. And, and, and one final note, uh, uh, Nicholas Felice. He was he was a very likable state assemblyman for nearly 20 years from Bergen County. He died this week. He was 94. He was he was a nice, good guy. He 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 wrote the law that created drug free school zones advocated for funding of autism and spinal cord research decades ago. if you didn't see about anything about his death in his local hometown newspaper, that's because they didn't write his obituary. And I don't know where the line is, everybody. I don't know. I don't know how many years you serve in the state legislature and serve in public office before you're passing merits and obituary. But I think 20 years in the legislature uh, is one of them. I will remember Nick Felice very fondly. And I'll be right back with Assembly Minority Leader John Bramnick. Uh, And after that, coming up at 435, I'll speak with New Jersey's new Attorney General, Andrew Brock. So don't go anywhere. Uh, You're not going to want to miss anything that either of them have to say. This is David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. John Bramnick is the minority leader of the New Jersey State Assembly. He's a Republican who has made civility and forging personal relationships with both sides of the aisle a top priority. Mr. Leader, how are you? Great to be on the show, David. Well, thank you for coming on. And, and Mr. Leader, the most recent poll has Governor Murphy running 16 points ahead of your party's nominee, Jack Chitterelli. Can Can Jack Chitterelli win this race?
0: Sure. I think the real issue is... I don't think it's about hating the governor. I think it's about running against the Republican brand. The reason we lose in New Jersey is because I believe the Trump brand has put us down 10 to 15 points. So anybody who runs, including Jack, has to show that we're independent New Jersey Republicans. And I think Jack is. I mean, Jack's always been a moderate. So I suspect when people get to know him, they'll see that. He's not necessarily a, quote, Trump Republican. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Bush Republican. I'm a Reagan Republican, but I'm not a Trump Republican.
1: And and Cittarelli seems to be running a little bit to the right of where people thought he'd be. Is, is, is that the winning strategy for him?
0: Well, I think sometimes the media interprets something he says. So if he says 20 things in a day, uh, many parts of the media are going to say, well, look what he said he's with Trump. Uh, All due respect, I'm not sure the general media is objective when it comes to Republicans in New Jersey. I mean, I've experienced that myself over the years. So I think as the people get to know him, they'll see that he's a fairly common sense guy.
1: And this, this poll that I was talking about, Mr. Leader said that COVID and taxes are the biggest issues. That's probably no surprise. You probably could have told me that without seeing a poll, but is, uh, is is phil murphy on the right side or the wrong side of new jersey on those issues
0: well i've always said he's made some good decisions and bad decisions Uh, i think sometimes when you highlight just as bad decisions it may not necessarily make the republicans look reasonable my sense is if he did something good admit it when he does something wrong admit that for example he actually signed a law that made a police officer a criminal if they actually told the parents that a 13-year-old kid was drinking beer or smoking marijuana. See, that's the extremism that I reject. I, I reject ex- extremism on both sides, but those are the kind of wild extreme policies that always get me concerned uh, in the Murphy administration.
1: And what you're talking about there, I, uh, the, the New Jersey State PBA has, has come out firmly against that. They They want the legislature to revisit it. They think that that was a a real flaw in that law. Is that do you believe in lame duck that'll get fixed or do you think this is just the way it's going to be?
0: I would hope so. I also think that if there was a parents alliance that you get about 90 percent of the parents think that's pretty uh, stupid law, too. It's one of the worst laws. So I think the key to republicanism in the state is to show that we're reasonable, that we're not extremists. And I think that's how we win as Republicans. I'm going to continue down that path. I don't really care about criticism I get from either side of the aisle. I think people want somebody who's reasonable and not an extremist. That That's my approach, and I'll take all the heat if I have to take
1: it. And I'm speaking with Assembly Minority Leader John Bramnick. And, and Mr. Leader, I, ha- I have to ask you about this big story in the New York Post today, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if they're trying to infer that you live in the Pontrefract of, of, of Westfield, but is is that news when they focus on that and not issues? Is that news?
0: Look, when people want to sell newspapers, what's ever interesting is what they put in the newspaper. I don't blame them. It's a business. I happen to be selling my house and just moving to a different part of Westfield. Uh, and so if that makes news, let me tell you, people are interested in that. You know, God bless them. I mean, to me, it's not news. I mean, people move all the time, but look, if it helps sell my house, I'm I'm all in favor. Of it. <laughs> it's
1: like a free ad, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, if you've been in politics long enough, you take the good with the bad.
1: <laughs> and, and I, I, I want to ask you about. I mean, this is, this is obviously a, a serious issue with the Taliban retaking Afghanistan. I mean, circumstances in the in the world have changed. President Biden nominated the director of the New Jersey DMV. Uh, as Assistant Secretary of Defense earlier this year, the U.S. Senate has not confirmed her. Is this the right time for Sue Fulton to be running things at the Pentagon?
0: I'm not a fan of Sue Fulton, not because it's a personal situation. The DMV has been a complete mess, and there's been no apologies from the DMV. It's poor administration. It's been a disaster for the average person. So, as I said, if you can't run the DMV, I'd be concerned that you can run any part of the military.
1: And one of your colleagues uh, was was on my show, Assemblyman Brian Bergen, when right around the time that President Biden nominated her, he's a, as, as you know, a, a, a West Point grad, uh, flew Army helicopters in combat in Iraq. His take at the time was, was, the Pentagon is so big, and they've got so many competent people there that that if Sue Fulton goes there, they'll they'll all they'll all notice her deficiencies as as, as a manager, and they'll 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 prop her up. Uh, Assemblyman Bergen said she's more dangerous to New Jersey at the DMV than she would be at the Pentagon. Is that is that fair?
0: Well, well, I'm not sure where she'd be more dangerous. Look, I saw what happened at DMV. It was a mess when she didn't apologize for the mess. All you have to do in politics or as administrators say, look, it failed. I'm working on it. I'm trying to do better. She never did that. And there's nothing wrong with saying I made a mistake. And if people won't admit they made a mistake, that's my biggest problem with Sue Fulton. And people are still having problems with DMV. Just own up to the mess. And then guess what? Say I'm going to do this. I'm going to fix it. I never heard that. And that's what makes me sad.
1: And, I mean, Mr. Leader, I'm speaking with with Assembly Minority Leader John Bramnick. Empathy is not a partisan issue, is it? I mean, it's not one party doesn't have empathy and the other doesn't. It it seems to me that's more based on who you are as a person.
0: Well, I would hope so. And, you know, we had people like John McCain, uh, George Bush one. Uh, You know, these are the kind of people that I respect where they show, listen, I don't hate the other side. You know, I have empathy for those. I just seriously disagree with their policies. And I think the end of the day, as a Republican leader in New Jersey, I want to show people I have empathy, but I'm also a good administrator or I make good common sense decisions. And until we do that as Republicans, we are not going to be successful, period. End of story. And what do you think happens after you leave,
1: you're, you're running for the state senate, so, so you will you will not be the minority leader of the state assembly next year. Uh, it 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 looks like the caucus has to make a decision: do they want somebody who gets you know gets along with with everybody and, and can talk to the Democratic leadership, or do they want a sort of a rabid fire breathing partisan? What, what what advice would you give uh, the people that will, will be next year your former colleagues in the state assembly?
0: I would say once again, you don't win by simply attacking the other side, you win by making the public believe that you are a good person, that you're smart, you're a good leader. So just attacking the other side, I think is old school. I don't buy it. I don't think it's a success path. So my advice is be reasonable, be smart, you know, look like you have good policies. Just don't attack and be bitter. I think that's a big mistake for Republicans. It may work in other states. It does not work in New Jersey, period.
1: And I'm speaking with Assembly Minority Leader John Bramnick. You are, in, in addition to your assembly responsibilities, a member of the Congressional Redistricting Commission. What now that, now that the census numbers have come out and people are starting to trade maps back and forth, where do you see the New Jersey map going?
0: Well, two things. First, I appointed two people to congressional redistricting. I am on the state. That's right. You're legislative. I apologize. Right. You know, it's hard to tell because it's so early. Whoever the 11th person is selected by the Chief Justice, Stu Rabner, in essence, they control redistricting. You know, we'll have a map. The Democrats will have a map. But until we see who that 11th person is, it's really hard to predict where that's going. I want competitive maps. Because if you have competitive districts, then you have the middle of the district. I'm not talking about political middle, common sense middle. They will elect a person from the district. Gerrymandering has been a mess. It actually creates partisanship. It creates extremism. I've put in constitutional amendments to change it. Make the districts competitive, and you will have a very successful map.
1: Do you expect Tom Kane Jr. to be the the nominee in your district against Tom Malinowski?
0: no doubt in my mind i mean he's been endorsed by washington he's a great fundraiser he's a common sense republican i suspect he will absolutely be the nominee i've no doubt in my mind
1: okay and i assembly minority leader john bramnick it is it is always a pleasure to speak to you and and thank you for calling in
0: Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. Have Thanks, a great
1: and day, and hope we'll talk soon. And I'll be right back with New Jersey's new Attorney General Andrew Bruck. So please stay right where you are; you won't want to miss this. This is David Wildstein, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio seventy-seven WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. Andrew Bruck has become the acting Attorney General of New Jersey. He started last month. That makes him New Jersey's top law enforcement officer. Mr. Attorney General, welcome. Thanks for having me, David. Well, thank you for coming on. And, and, and since you took office, uh, I've noticed a, a number of indictments of gang members in New Jersey. How, how serious an issue is gang violence in New Jersey right now?
2: Well, look, gun violence is going up across the country and New Jersey is not immune to these trends. And um you know it's easy to talk about numbers and statistics but we know that every single one of the people who are killed by gun violence it it affects a family it affects a community and we are sort of laser focused on trying to get this under control here in New Jersey and where are
1: where are the gangs where where do we see the most gang activity in the state
2: so i think it's centered in a a handful of communities across the state i think that we see the most gun violence in Newark and Patterson and Camden, Jersey City, Trenton. Unfortunately, it's predominantly, it's disproportionately communities of color. It's communities that have uh, historically lacked access to educational opportunities, to employment opportunities. So there's a whole, fo- a whole host of issues that these cities and communities are facing, and unfortunately, uh, gang violence is one of them.
1: And and you're saying this is. Uh Closely tied to to the number of illegal guns that are available to gang members.
2: No, I think I think that's right. I mean, the, the reality is is that about eighty two to eighty five percent of guns that we're recovering from crime scenes in New Jersey are coming from out of state. It's uh, something that is incredibly concerning to Governor Murphy. It's incredibly concerning to me, and I think we need to do everything we can to to prevent those guns from. You know working their way from Georgia South Carolina North Carolina uh, onto the streets of Camden Newark and Trenton
1: and you know I mean New Jersey as you know it's 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 one it's one probably the I think it's the only state that doesn't have its own in-state television news it's it's half New Jersey half Philadelphia so so we don't see a whole lot of of stories about about gangs and 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 what's going on there I, I just I, you know I think it's important for people to know that uh, Just because they don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening?
2: No, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to be out in the community talking to folks who are affected by gun violence. And especially, you know, in in these cities, they know it. They feel it. And, you know, I think that New Jersey is the greatest state in the country to live in, but you don't get to enjoy the benefits of residency in this state if you're afraid to sit on your front porch after dinner, if you're afraid to let your kids walk down the street to... Uh, the playing field or the basketball court in the evening, worried that they're going to get shot, um, and I think that the, that fear is real in some of these communities, and we owe it to them to do everything we can to to end gun violence in the state.
1: And I'm speaking with New Jersey Attorney General Andrew Brock, uh, Mr. Attorney General, you get you get to be the AG uh, for for about six months before your term expires, and you know, of course, we have we have the uncertainties of uh, of an election, but you said you want the reduction of 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 gun violence you want. You want gun safety to be one of your top priorities. What's, what's the plan, it, it, at least in the short term? What does what New Jersey look to expect from you over the next few months?
2: Yeah, well, look, it's, it's one of my top priorities, and I also know it's one of the governor's top priorities. You know, I think that we, we reduce gun violence in this state using a three-pronged strategy. We need to treat the root causes of violence. We need to keep dangerous weapons away from those who are most likely to use it. And we need to aggressively prosecute those who use guns to commit violence. No one of those prongs on its own is going to solve this issue, but I think taken together, we can make real progress in pushing down the gun violence rates in our state.
1: And last week, I had, uh, I had Fred Guttenberg on the show. As you know, one of the nation's leading gun safety advocates, he pointed to the need to hold gun makers accountable, and 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 I, I know federal laws. Shield gun manufacturers from liability for for gun crimes, gun deaths, but New Jersey's suing Smith and Wesson for their advertising practices. That seems to be uh, a, a different strategy than what's happened before. What's what's going on?
2: Well, David, as you know, I'm I'm always loath to talk about ongoing investigations, but because Smith and Wesson has put some of this in the public domain, I can I can share with you what's public. Um, you know, we are concerned that Smith and Wesson has uh, put advertisements in New Jersey that suggested that um, you know, a concealed carry of a firearm makes you safer or that you could do it without having a permit. Um, and so we have issued subpoenas to Smith and Wesson in order to collect information about whether they made any uh, false representations in this state. Uh, most often when we issue a subpoena to a company, they do what they're supposed to do under the law. They comply. They turn over documents. Smith and Wesson decided not to do that. Instead, they sued us in federal court saying they weren't going to turn over the information. We then brought a lawsuit against them in state court saying we issued a subpoena. you got to turn over the information. Um, uh, there were two different lawsuits about the subpoenas that we issued uh, in the last few weeks. We've won both of them. We won in the New Jersey district court, and we won before the New Jersey Supreme Court saying, you know what? Uh, Smith and Wesson has got to turn over the information pursuant to – the AG's office subpoena. Uh, and so it's now out in the public domain that Smith and Wesson is beginning to produce those documents. We will be taking a close look at them and figure out whether they, in fact, have broken the law here in the state. And
1: I'm speaking with Attorney General Andrew Brock of New Jersey. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, one of the things I, I read was, was was a comparison of, of going after Smith and Wesson and, and, and therefore uh, uh, gun makers in, in the way that people went after tobacco companies in the 1990s. Is that, a, is that a fair comparison?
2: Well, look, I mean, I think we're dealing with a federal law that makes it very difficult to hold gun manufacturers accountable for their misconduct. And I I know this is something that you talked about with Fred Gutenberg last week. Um, and that that makes it very challenging for us to hold those responsible who are playing a role in gun violence. But I think that um, we need to think about uh, whether these manufacturers have engaged in conduct that violates state law. And if they had, we'll hold them accountable and we'll use all the tools and resources available to us in the AG's office to make sure we're holding them accountable.
1: And, and on, a, on a, I guess on a parallel track, Mr. Attorney General, you, you, you've been leading an aggressive gun buyback program. Can you can tell me what's going on with that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So two weeks ago, we hosted gun buybacks in four communities across New Jersey, in Atlantic City, Newark, Patterson, and East Orange. And in a single day gun buyback, we got about 1,000 guns from those four cities. It was really a a great event, and I was happy to stop in each of those four communities to to watch it in action. Um, And we got such a great feedback from, from that day, we've decided to add a second gun buyback, which we'll be doing in October. And I think six or seven additional counties across the state.
0: Do
2: you have
1: have any idea? Is there a target? Is there a goal on on how many guns you might be able to
2: buy back by the end of the year? So the goal is to get as many guns off the street as possible. And uh, any one of the weapons that we buy back could have been a firearm that, you know a six-year-old would have found in their grandparents attic that could have been taken by a family member to you know uh, commit suicide during a mental health crisis they could have been stolen uh, out of someone's uh, bedroom and used in a gun crime and so I- i'm less concerned with the total number of guns we take off the street i just want to know that we're getting guns off and that they're not winding up uh, harming the residents of our state and the, you
1: know just just to be clear, I mean you're 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 talking about gun buybacks. You're you know I I I, will, I always like to make it make it absolutely clear to everybody who's listening. This is this is this is not shutting down the Second Amendment. This is this is something different.
2: No, this is totally voluntary. We we pay people for the guns. We we pay two hundred and fifty dollars for assault weapons. I think we pay two hundred dollars for handguns. So this is a chance for folks who have firearms in their home who feel like they don't want them anymore. They don't need them anymore. An opportunity to safely dispose of them, no questions asked, and get some cash for it.
1: And I'm speaking with Andrew Bruck, the Attorney General of New Jersey. You, you've spoken about prioritizing good policing issues related to social justice. It, it it seems to me that this all circles back to a belief by you, by the Murphy administration, that, that gun safety legislation and, and action by law enforcement are going to reduce crime. Is that is that, is that a fair read?
2: I think that's absolutely right. And look, what's, what's fascinating is that when you go into, into some communities that are really affected by gun violence, oftentimes um, they, they know who the trigger pullers are. They know who are, who's, who's using these guns to kill folks. Uh, but sometimes they don't feel comfortable coming forward to talk to law enforcement because they don't believe that law enforcement has their best interests at heart. Now, I happen to think that that perception is incorrect. I do think law enforcement cares deeply about solving gun crime. But as long as that perception is out there, it means that we have to do more to build trust with the communities most often affected by gun violence, to build trust with communities of color so that they feel comfortable coming to us and we can work together to end gun violence.
1: And we're talking – you've been talking a lot about I mean, you know, assault rifles and I mean, untraceable ghost guns, uh large capacity ammunition magazines i mean are, are this is is the number of guns in New jersey right now is that would, would you say it's, it's higher than what average people think they might be
2: so I think there's a lot of illegal guns in New jersey and that's what we're most concerned about right if you purchase a gun lawfully and you have it in your home you, you have the right to do that the second amendment protects it but what I'm really concerned about are illegal guns that wind up in communities where we see the most intense gun violence and and i think Folks don't always realize just how many guns are out there, how many of these guns are untraceable, how deadly these weapons can be, the number of folks who can be killed very quickly using these very dangerous weapons. And we hope to educate people about that so they can realize what a problem it is. And how many
1: – and uh, I, I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't know you – know, I'm, I'm not looking for the exact number, but how many gun deaths are there in New Jersey as a result of, of illegal guns?
2: So it's tough to know how many of them are the result of illegal guns. I can tell you that so far through 2021, year to date, I think we've had about 160 um, folks who have been killed by a firearm in the state um, as part of sort of gun violence, putting aside suicides. Um, and that's that's way, way, way too many. Um, I think a lot of these a lot of these shooting decks – shooting deaths occur in places where the guns came from out of state, so they probably got here illegally. And so my guess is that the vast majority of those deaths involved an illegal handgun.
1: And and one of the things I've, I've been reading recently is is that, you know, now post COVID as, as people are, are 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 getting out and and I know there's been a bit of, of a spike in, in, in crime, but but I read that eighty percent of the guns That are are being used or or coming from out of state is that is that an accurate number?
2: Yeah, it's um, if you sort of look quarter to quarter over the last two years or so, it's sort of between 82 and 85 percent of the guns are coming from out of state. Um, So they're coming from Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia. Um, It's really coming up through that uh, through that iron pipeline from states that don't have as robust or common sense laws as we've got here in New Jersey.
1: And, and I've been speaking with uh, Andrew Bruck, the, the new Attorney General of New Jersey. Con- congratulations on your on your appointment. And, uh, uh, and and I hope we'll be able to speak again soon. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you very much, Mr. Attorney General. And this is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. I'll be right back to talk about redistricting and, and my all-time favorite political deal on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour right here on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and as New Jersey begins the process of legislative redistricting, the next step will be the appointment of a tiebreaker, an independent 11th member uh, that could possibly cast the deciding vote if Democrats and Republicans can not agree on a map. And that appointment belongs to Stuart Rabner. He is the chief justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court. Unlike congressional redistricting, where both parties submitted one name and the full court voted uh, for one of the two, and they voted for the Democratic candidate, the Chief Justice alone picks the legislative tiebreaker. And Rabner asked each party for a list of names, and, and he wanted to see if there was a match and the Chief Justice was inclined to pick that person if there was somebody on a list from both parties, but but of the eleven names, eight of them came from Democrats and three from Republicans, there was no match. So the Chief Justice needs to decide if he'll pick from the partisan list. Uh, he'd either be balancing the congressional tiebreaker going with a Republican, uh, or he'd pick one of the Democrats, or he can burn the 11 candidates entirely and select his own and 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 i say this you know all seriousness all 11 potential tiebreakers that have been identified they are smart they are competent people some of them are less independent politically than others some more partisan than others but uh, but they are they are high quality men and women of gravitas and and as Chief Justice Rabner mulls his pick, which, which probably won't come until October. I'd like to help him out just, just a little bit. And to be, to be crystal clear, I'm going to be a little tongue-in-cheek, but I'll explain why, because there, there is a point. The first thing I'd like to do is propose the 160 rule. And that means that the combined ages of the congressional and legislative tiebreakers can't be more than 160 years old. And since Justice Wallace, retired Justice Wallace, who was the congressional tiebreaker, 79, that would cap the age of the legislative tiebreaker at 81. And that would take three names, two Republicans and one Democrat, would take three of the 11 names off the list because they are, they are older than age 81. Uh, and here's what I do next. I'd put the remaining eight tiebreakers in a I don't know, high school cafeteria, all social distance and sitting at separate tables. And and in front of each one, I'd put a brand new laptop computer, still in its original sealed box. And I'd, bring, I'd ring a bell and I'd ask the remaining eight to set up their laptops. And, and the first three to connect to the internet, and successfully send an email those three would advance to the next level of the competition now i don't i don't mean any disrespect to the people the democrats and the republicans put on their list but the the average age the average age of those of those 11 members is 72. and the point i'm trying to make is that the redistricting tiebreaker needs to be more than just a good mediator technology plays an a huge outsized role in redistricting I and mean, this is a process that's entirely data-driven drawing districts involves I mean, right down to the census track level to to look at individual voting districts it it involves understanding local election results and party performance and and looking at racial uh and and ethnic makeups of of individual voting districts so my point is, if you can't use a computer with ease, if you don't know your no, if you don't know your way around spreadsheets and analytics, uh, uh, if you won't be able to quickly learn how to use mapping software, well, I mean, maybe being a tiebreaker on a redistricting commission isn't the job for you. And and my guess is, I really don't know, but I think I'm right, is that. Chief Justice Rabner could set up a laptop that I think would be fairly easy for him, and, and he knows how to analyze data. So my guess is he knows what I'm saying here, that the tiebreaker... Uh, tiebreaker can't be one of those guys uh, you see on Zoom who you can just see their eyes and their foreheads. They need to know how to use a computer, and, and I think that's going to be key as the Chief Justice looks at who that 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 11th member will be. This is David Wildstein. You were listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Earlier in the show, I told a story about a, a prostitute and a pimp and a Hoboken politician and a murder. And and let me tell you, this story links to the election of the Speaker of the New Jersey State Assembly. Uh, if you missed it, go to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour uh. Uh, on njglobe.com or wabcradio.com or, or spotify apple and google podcast please don't miss the story of silvio fiola but here's the story the best political insider deal in new jersey history the effects of that deal are still being felt today and they will be be uh be so felt in 2022 uh democrats picked up 19 state assembly seats in in the 1971 midterms. It flipped control of the lower house from Republican to Democrat. The new assembly was 40 Democrats, 39 Republicans, and one independent, Tony Imperiali from, from Newark. The new speaker was supposed to be a black minister from Trenton named Howard Woodson. He would have become the first person of color to serve as a legislative leader. But Republican Tom Kane, 36 years old. He was the outgoing majority leader of the assembly, and he wasn't ready to lose the speakership without a fight. So, Kane cut a deal with David Friedland, a Democratic assemblyman from Jersey City. Friedland brought three other Democrats along with him, and Tom Cain became assembly speaker, even though Democrats had more seats. And Friedland and three other Democrats all became committee chairmen. And Even though Watergate ended his term after two years, Kane's time as speaker helped him establish a a career trajectory that uh, eventually led to his becoming the most popular two-term governor in New Jersey's history. Uh, I can do... I think I could probably do an entire show on David Friedland. He's, he's one of the most memorable characters in New Jersey political history. Uh, Friedland eventually made his way to prison, but, but only after skipping bail and faking his Death in a scuba diving accident, and and using a series of fake passports that led U.S. marshals on a on a manhunt. It took them through, through Europe and Asia and Africa. And by the time he was captured, David Friedland owned a chain of scuba diving shops in the Maldives island, off the the coast of Sri Lanka. So someday I'll tell you the whole story. It's amazing, and 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 as they say from from this is from the personal news category, the New Jersey Globe was one of three media organizations picked by the new jersey election law enforcement commission to host one of the officially sanctioned debates in the upcoming election in in new jersey if you accept public financing and gubernatorial campaigns in exchange for getting 10.5 million dollars in matching funds candidates for governor are required to participate in two debates and the candidates for lieutenant governor in one i'll be moderating the lieutenant governor debate between the incumbent Sheila Oliver she's running with Phil Murphy and Jack Cittarelli's running mate former Senator Diane Allen it'll it'll be held at the Rebavitch Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University I'll be Joined on the panel by Micah Rasmussen and and Chanel McLeod. That's coming up on October 5th, and I will remind you frequently. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, This is uh, David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you're listening to New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC.